Yeah, hey, this is exciting because I have uh, little time constraints. <laughs> That's exciting for me, actually. You probably don't know this, or maybe you've noticed, but sometimes I write down some things that I'm going to say, but it's more like an outline, and I'm never really exactly sure where I might end up wandering, which is not advisable because there are times when I... I go into a cul-de-sac, and I'm like, hmm, I probably shouldn't be here, and I have to try to figure out, figure out how to get out. But um, thanks, Beth, for your meditation. These are the things that, this is the ground I want to cover, and your questions are, are the same questions I'm, I'm asking. What would it look like to look under the hood here a little bit? Um, as you know, I'm in a, we're, we're in a series which we're calling We Have Questions, and I wanted to just talk about the unconscious. So I, I couldn't really think of a good question, so I just uh, I titled it, Is the Unconscious Real? And I'm going to say, it's real, and now I'm going to talk about it for a while. Um, yeah, and so m maybe I want to just take a step back and um, use the word psyche for a moment. Uh, psyche is a Greek word, and it, it's, would be, you would translate it as soul, really. That's probably the most direct translation of the word psyche. And uh, interestingly enough, the word psyche is, is almost the same word or is related to the word for butterfly, which is nice because sometimes you need an image like Weird is related to destiny. That's not so much an image. By the way, that was a great relief because I, I would say among the things I've been called in life, that's one of them. <laughs> and I agree. We should be um, curious about our own weirdness as it relates to our own destiny. That's, that would be another title of the talk I gave last time I was here, which is soul as relationship. What is our way of being in relationship with things? Well, what is the shape? Um, of our soul, you could say. Anyway, the Greeks gave us a relationship between psyche and butterfly, which tells you something. It's like, first of all, the, the image itself implies a kind of metamorphosis, a kind of change, a kind of dramatic, wild um, turning over of something from one kind of being to another. I mean, it's probably hard to go back to three or four years old to imagine being told that this little worm, this fuzzy worm, would turn into this little flying being. You probably believed it right away because, I don't know, there's something about the childhood imagination that is uh, more open to reality as it is. Anyway, so there's something about that in, in butterfly, but also if you just think about the way a butterfly moves through the field or through your backyard or along the grasses. Or I was swimming in the ocean not that long ago, and there was a butterfly out in the ocean. I was like, God, what, what kind of world is this? You know, And, and you can't really predict where it's going to go, and is it following its own intuitions? Is it being blown by the wind? Well, um, I don't know. That's, a, that's an image of, of your psyche, of the core of your being, of your essence. It has a kind of beauty to it. So I wanted to just start by 
I don't know, elevating that word for a moment, because I also want to ask, well, what do we actually mean by psyche now in the, in the 21st century? I, without losing connection with that, um, with that kind of image. But when I use the word psyche, I, I kind of mean the whole person, not just the mind, really. That's one way of taking it, like, oh, you're going to see a psychologist. They're going to fix your mind. They're not, but, you know, that's the idea. I'm, I'm working on my mind stuff. But that's a kind of dated way of thinking about it anyone, anyway. Any, anyone that's been to, to any kind of therapeutic help that's good knows that the worlds are interconnected and what you eat and how much you sleep and who your friends are or your lack of friends or your memories, um, how much you exercise, all this kind of stuff. That's, that's the, and when, so when I say psyche, I mean like body, mind, soul, spirit, a kind of, um, it's, I use it in, in a slightly more broad way. And one of the things I think we're being invited to in the 21st century is some more conscious attention to the psyche and to a healthy psyche and to a psyche that is in the process of growing up and isn't in a stage of arrested development. Because psyche, like everything else, is nature itself. It's not a made-up thing in that sense, in my view. It's as natural as dune grasses and caterpillars and oak leaves and whatever. It's nature. Why can I say that? Because you're nature. I know so much of um, the modern um, hang-up that human beings have is we think about ourselves as somehow being outside of the natural world. What I'm saying is psyche and even everything I'm going to talk about is like talking about nature itself, our own nature as human beings. And just like everything else in the world grows, so does the psyche. <laughs> and it just seems to be the case that with human beings much less so than something in the wild world, tend to get stunted, arrested, although that can happen in the wild world too, but stunted, arrested, stuck, fixated, rigid, closed, so forth and so on. Okay. Here's a question I've asked before, but... Maybe it's like a yearly question that you should ask yourself. Um, is there something you don't know about yourself? And, you know, you don't have to go crazy here. You could say like, well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't really know how um, the small intestines work, really. I don't really, I don't really get that, you know. I mean, I can imagine it, but, I, you know, it's just, I've never, I don't really know it. <laughs> it's kind of a mystery down there. <laughs> I mean, like, um, yeah, are there things that you don't know about yourself that you're just walking around kind of half blind? And do you want to keep walking around like that <laughs> is maybe the follow-up question. By the way, I think tomorrow is Yom Kippur. Am I right about in saying that? Do you, do you know? What, what's that? Yeah, Yom Kippur. It's the Day of Atonement in, in, in Judaism. And uh, when I was in graduate school, um, I had a rabbinic Judaism class. And the rabbi, um, one day in class, said, uh, 
hey, I know there are some Christians here, and I've said some things about Jesus, and um, I want to say I'm sorry. I'm sorry if, if I offended you. I probably did offend you because I don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. I think he was a great guy, interesting rabbi, and, and, you know, and we're like, oh, don't worry about it, man. I don't know if we <laughs> really said it like that, but <laughs> that was more my idea. Don't worry about it. It's okay, bro. <laughs> um, Anyway, uh, and then with that spilled into a larger conversation, and it just sort of came out like, oh, it's, you know, the Day of Atonement is approaching, and every year I try to make amends. Well, try to do some self-examination. Try to say, is there something I don't know about myself? Imagine, I mean, what, a, what an amazing and challenging thing for a tradition to hold on to. What if once a year before you went into the voting booth, you had to do some self-examination <laughs> or whatever? Um, or whatever, before your next big family gathering. Before Thanksgiving, you had to fast and, and not eat and do some self-examination and say, is there anyone in the family that I've offended? <laughs> There's no way in hell I'm doing that. But <laughs> anyway, we like to live without looking too carefully at the unconscious, the deeper layers, as you were saying, or, the, or just the subconscious, just what's right below the surface that we tend to repress a little bit. And I think powerfully Judaism tries to pre preserve this kind of ancient self-examination. So my first question is, is there something you don't know about yourself? And, or let's just put it in non-personal terms, like what if the President of the United States is, is walking around not knowing something important about why he does what he does? Wouldn't you be like, ah, you might want to like get to know why you're doing what you're doing, you know? Now, I'm just picking on the president because the stakes are high, correct? So, all right, how does that apply to each of us, you know? I mean, we're, we're doing the same thing is what, is what I'm suggesting. And I, I also want to say there's a relationship. I'll try to define the unconscious here in a moment um, or just maybe jump on what Beth was saying. Um, but I want to say that, at least in my view, some of the greatest challenges, or I mean, I might even exaggerate, all of the greatest challenges we face as human beings, as a species, about our culture, our institutions, our world, our climate, the future, is related to what I'm describing about what we can't see about ourselves, what we don't know about ourselves, what are our unconscious assumptions about the way the world is. This is not like, what I'm not wanting to talk about this morning is like navel-gazing. We're just going to like do some internal work and get to know the inside as if it's not related to the outside world. That's not what I'm talking about. What are our real motivations? What are our sources of fear? What are our attractions or repulsions or passions? And how do you come to know these things? How do you come to know them partially? How do you come to know them in a more full way? the train I want to wander around in. So um, some definitions, uh, and I'm going to be as simple as possible here. The unconscious is what you're not conscious of. <laughs> so, okay, whether it's the subconscious, the unconscious, it almost doesn't matter. It's like you're not that aware of it. If you're aware of it, then you're conscious of it. So that answers the question, is the unconscious real? Of course it's real because there are all kinds of things that you're not aware of, that I'm not aware of. Um, Maybe it's time. Yeah, yeah, let's, let's read some Freud here. Okay, this is in your bulletin. Properly speaking, 
the unconscious is the real psychic. Its inner nature is just as unknown to us as the reality of the external world. Like, pause for a moment. Pause here. Just as unknown to us as the reality of the external world. Like, the external world. Like, how well do you know um, quantum physics? Like, even if you knew, like, an equation, if I were to give you an equation, I don't even know if there are equations in quantum, <laughs> that's how little I know about it, but that described it in some sort of, like, mathematical fashion, would you understand it? How well do you understand any, how well do you understand dark matter? Like, just this morning, you're like, just deep in my somatic awareness, I just was, uh, I just knew dark matter and, and how it worked. No, you would have no idea. You, have no, you don't even know what it is. You don't even know if that's just like a metaphor, Okay then Freud is saying, that's how little you know your own psychic landscape. <laughs> it's like, no wonder he said, now you've got to come to me for years and, you know, I'll help you out. So, but just, just like the external world can feel impenetrable, well, that's also true, and it, that's not necessarily a bad thing, okay? It's like um, uh, David was saying this morning in the, in the pre-talk, if we went around conscious of everything all the time, it would be like, I mean, we couldn't get anything done, you know? It's like, We'd just be so flooded. So there's a reason why things go, go down in, into the lower re regions, you could say. All right, let's finish the quote. Properly speaking, the unconscious is the real psychic. Its inner nature is just as unknown to us as the reality of the external world, and it is just as imperfectly reported to us through the data of consciousness as the external world through the indications of our sensory organs. In other words, our data collection, what now I'll call the ego, is often imperfect. Now imagine that. I know yours isn't. <laughs> or only certain political parties, their radar is off. But he's saying it's true of everybody. We get false reports. We don't know all that much. See, this is fundamentally humbling what Freud is trying to expose here. It's actually earth-shattering, and it's very disturbing. What do you mean, the I? Now, I should probably give you a little bit of, of um, history with uh, Freud and Jung. When they wrote in German, instead of using the word ego, that's a trans the translators decide to use that word, that's a Latin word, they used the word I. Now, think about that. Just switch that around. Someone says, so-and-so has a big ego. So-and-so has a big I. That's what Freud and Jung were both getting at. Your sense of I, I this, I that, I feel this, I think that, I like this, I don't like that, I am not happy that Culver's raised their prices for kids' meals, I am whatever, go on and on and on. That's the I, okay? And you're mostly aware, but he's also saying it, it, it doesn't report to us accurately very well, both the external world and the internal world. It's limited. Does that make sense? So good news, we're screwed. <laughs> I think that it is important to, to feel into that, though, because if to, to make any progress here, if that's even the right word, or to even wrestle with, quote, the unconscious requires a tremendous amount of humility, requires you and I to say, I guess I don't really know what I'm talking about half the time. Or maybe I'm not so sure that even my own thoughts and feelings are all that valid. 
Maybe something else is going on. Okay. And now, and now, drum roll, I want to give you an image, which Beth already used. This is fantastic. Let's imagine your psyche like an iceberg. Okay, and I'm just going to divide up the iceberg into parts. I did this once before, but only like in a drive-through version. I'm not going to spend a ton of time here anyway, but for me, it's a helpful image. So as you've all been told, or if you've seen, I've seen an iceberg before, they're much larger under the water than above the surface. Okay, that's, you know, hence the Titanic. All right. So what's above the water line here is what I'm going to call two things, the ego and the persona. I'll get to the persona in a few mo moments. But your ego, your I, just like I used it a few minutes ago, your sense of I. There it is above the water line. Just imagine it. Like, there you are. You're just above the water line right here. You're looking around. You're like, man, this ocean. I just love this place or I hate this place or I can see really far or it's cold or these are the things the I know. I knows. All right? Now, the thing with the iceberg image is, the way I'm using it now, is everything below the waterline, the ego doesn't know anything about, or knows very little about, you could say, which is kind of disturbing, because here I am floating along the water, and I think, this is all, I'm just, a, here I am adrift in the sea. Meanwhile, we can't see this sort of m mass below, this, below the waterline. We can't see it very well. And what's below the waterline? Well... Here are a list of things. These are just psychological language. We've got um, our personal complexes, our personal patterns and energies that can come up and sort of take us over. Um, we have what Jung called the shadow, or at least shadowy dimensions, both gold, golden and sinister, things we can't see about our own darkness or about our own light. We're not that aware of it. And then we also have the collective field, like the this is more from Jungian stuff, but the collective field of archetypes, like the big patterns. Um, let me try to think of an example of that wakes up an archetype. Like, uh, okay, you remember at the beginning of the, uh, the Lion King when um, Simba is born? And uh, they, they <laughs> I don't know why I thought of this. This is not in my notes, all right? Here, I've gone into a cul-de-sac. Um, and they lift up Simba like this. Isn't it Simba they lift up? And, and all the animals are singing and... And we like it. I mean, if you're like, oh, I don't like that film. You do. You like that moment. You're like, yeah, this is, I want to just be in the forest and be like, the king, the king. That's an archetype. And it wakes up a pattern that is universal. Okay? Now, you could argue about why should we have kings. That's not even what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about the pattern that shows up again and again and again in myths and stories and legends and cultures and social structures and families. Okay? Um, and I guarantee you, if I... Uh, if, if my wife and I had another baby and I came in here and I played that song and I lifted it up, you would be like, you would get the chills, all right? <laughs> I just got the chills just thinking about it. <laughs> all right. What was I even talking about? Oh, I know, I know. <laughs> Below the, okay, if, the, if above the waterline we have the ego and the, the corresponding persona, Below, we have personal complexes, shadowy material, archetypes, the collective shadow, because whole people groups can have shadows, a, co the, a collective shadow. We have the instincts, all those like raw, animalistic instincts that no matter how sophisticated you are and how buttoned up you, you, know, you are, 
there they are, alive and well, down there, doing what they do. You have the instincts. From a Jungian point of view, you have the self, which we don't, I, want, I don't want to talk about. It's kind of a unifying whole that includes the whole thing. You even have, from Jung's point of view, God as an archetype down there, as a complex even. So this, this uh, um, desire or drive for there to be some sort of meaning or order, things like this, all sort of below the waterline. You have the soul the way I was using it the other day, the way we are shaped, our way of being in relationship. Okay, that's all beneath the surface, I'm arguing. <coughs> okay, let me pick up on two threads uh, from last time I talked. Because some of you kind of like this, and um, it, it just sort of occurred to me in the moment, so I'm, I'm going with it. Um, I sort of suggested that consciousness itself is like, like an aperture uh, for a camera. Remember this? And um, what I said was that the ego, or the I, has a pretty small uh, opening here. And that's how we are most of the time. We're going around and we're like, you know, looking at things. And even, quote, altered states of consciousness is just sometimes that aperture uh, moving over to a different part of the stage, like a spotlight. <laughs> okay, we're going to move over here. And uh, like, <laughs> for example, um, I know you've never been drunk. Of course not. But have you ever been with somebody who's, really had too much to drink, and you're having a philosophical conversation, okay? Okay, about maybe like 5% uh, of what they're saying is in the realm of, wow, this is like kind of a profound insight. 95% of it is the aperture is still pretty small, okay? Even though you might feel euphoric, you might be in a different part of the stage of human consciousness, the aperture is still pretty small. My friend, uh, I almost said his name, I guess he wouldn't care anyway, but he said, he got really into weed for a while, and um, so he started keeping a weed journal, which <laughs> just to see if all his profound thoughts were really profound. And he said, 99% of them were just trash. <laughs> anyway, that's an example of the, the apertures remaining small, but, you know, an altered state, can you, you can move around here or there. And what I was suggesting that so can sometimes happen, like in the wild world, when the thinking mind is not so present, um, like I was using the example of fasting out in, out in the wilderness, sometimes that, that aperture can open. Okay, and, and actually what's happening, more is being included. The eye is able to include more. More, more of what's actually real, internally and externally. And, and it's possible. I think that's what, what a, you know, a spiritual life starts to aim toward, that aperture opening. You know, I live my life in widening circles that move out across the world. That's Rilke. I think part of that, you can just think about the aperture opening. Like, you don't have to go anywhere for your, for your circles to widen. Um, so part of what I'm asking is, what happens when that aperture widens and starts to include things like uh, what's in the unconscious realm, what's within, what we're unaware of, what might be driving us or haunting us or frightening us or what we're ignoring or repressing, for better or worse, what we don't want to see um, but wishes to make itself known. That's what, can, that's what I'm wondering about, what happens when the aperture widens. Okay, here's a line from uh, Freud again. The unconscious, that is to say the repressed, offers no resistance whatever to the efforts of the treatment. Indeed, 
itself has no other endeavor than to break through the pressure weighing down on it and force its way to consciousness or to a discharge through some real action. What Freud is getting at is the unconscious material wants to come out, especially as we age, initially just to survive. I don't know. I mean, sometimes I think about for every child. I don't care how, you know, what kind of home they come from. It's kind of like a war. And it's like a war of survival. How do I survive? Who loves me? Where do I fit in? Where's the nurturance? Basic things, food, clothing, shelter. But at a certain point, and a lot of stuff starts to go in the basement in childhood, but at a certain point, some of that material, what Freud is saying, the repressed material, wants to come forth. It wants to make itself known. So why should we be paying attention to the unconscious? Because it wants to make itself known, not just because, well, I don't have anything better to do and I've you know, got some free time on Thursday, might as well dive into the unconscious. Because it, it's an experience of being more put together in, in a sense of wholeness. It's an experience of the iceberg. There's more of me than I thought. Now, he also, it's just kind of an aside, he said, it's going to come out whether you're making it conscious or through some sideways action. Okay, I don't want to go into detail there. Here's a very famous quote from Hume. One does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light but by making the darkness conscious. Okay? One does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light. Now, we wish, that would be great. We could just sit here and close our eyes and imagine winged beings and imagine enlightenment and soak in the light and bring the sun inside the solar plexus. And Jung is saying, fine, but <laughs> if you, um, you want to be really enlightened, you've got to go into the dark. Dark, 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 we all go into the dark. That's T.S. Eliot. Or here's a line from Jesus. When he, this is his advice on prayer. Go into your room and shut the door. Right? <laughs> in other words, go into the darkness. I know as soon as you bring in Jesus, like, people start like, oh, what kind of theology is he saying? I'm just hearing it differently on almost psychological terms here. Go into your room and shut the door. All right? <laughs> there you are. Go into the darkness, he's saying. Okay. I've reached the point in the talk where I'm going to say, how? <laughs> if the unconscious wants our attention, as Freud is saying, wants to come forth, if much of our life is lived on the kind of surface of the ocean with our little uh, ego looking around on top of the water, how, how do we begin to to sink below the, the waterline without getting into real trouble here. Well, I, I can't promise that part of it. <laughs> um, okay. <clears throat> when I'm, a, a number of years ago, and my wife actually introduced me to a practice that she got from James Finley. And this is one of the most common practices that I engage in and that I encourage other people to engage in. Almost always when I meet with people in a one-on-one -on -one setting, at a certain point, I suggest doing something like this. So right now, I'm gonna give you homework. Not that you have to do it, you can just push it right down there into the subconscious, who cares, all right? But if you were to take it seriously, <clears throat> I wanna give you 
it's some very 101 homework, all right? And if you really do your homework, you, it's like, um, well, I'll just leave it at that. The, the exercise is called getting to know yourself in ego consciousness, all right? Getting to know yourself in ego consciousness, because you can't possibly go beneath the waterline if you don't know what's going on above the water in the first place, all right? So, Getting to know yourself in ego consciousness has four components to it. And they're, root, they're rooted in the four functions from Jungian thought, but here they are. Here's your, here's your exercise. Over the course of the next couple weeks, I challenge you to do a little journaling in these four categories. All right? What have I been thinking about? All right, what have I been thinking about? What have I been feeling? What have I been sensing, like five senses, that kind of sensing? What have I been imagining? I'm kind of changing it a little bit. Jung likes the word intuition, but I like the word imagination. I got that from Bill Plotkin. Okay, thinking, feeling, sensing, and imagination. Are you with me so far? That is, in part, what Beth is talking about, about the subconscious. Just going one layer beneath the surface, and bring it, widening the aperture to say, what have I actually been thinking about? Now, just right now, just go back in the week. What have I spent a lot of time thinking about? All right? If you have an iPhone, or maybe it's Android too, or whatever, the other, the other brand, um, or brands, whatever, um, <clears throat> it'll probably tell you not only how much screen time you've had, but where that screen time has been been associated, like whatever, on Instagram or Facebook. So if you want to get to know yourself in ego consciousness, you can start there. What have I been thinking about? And if, I were to, if it were to tell me, let's say I sent, spent, oh, I'll just look. Um, let's see. This could be really embarrassing. Uh, screen time. <laughs> okay. What's that? Yeah, no, no, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're telling me, please, get edit. Um, I have to see where it tells me where I spent on each thing. See all activity. Here it is. <laughs> Got to go back to, to last week. All right. Oh, I'm going to tell you. I know you don't want to know, but... Uh, All right, I averaged on Instagram nine minutes a day. That seems kind of low, actually. This must be a, a week when I was really righteous. Um, one day I spent 30 minutes. Okay, that, that, that's what I was getting at, just something like that. One day I spent 30 minutes on Instagram. Yeah, what, what the heck was I doing? And what was I thinking about? What was I thinking about while I was scrolling on Instagram or watching little memes about probably biking, professional bike. I spent a lot of time thinking about, you know what, guess what? I don't know if you know this or not, but I'm not a professional biker. <laughs> I've never been in the Tour de France, and I spent a lot of time f watching other people, grown men ride bikes. This is always funny to my kids. Like, why are you watching biking? And you know how long a bike race lasts? Like, uh, just one day of the Tour de France? Any given day, a single day, they can be riding their bikes between five and six hours. And if I had the time, I would watch the whole thing. 
And you know what they would be doing at hour three that they were also doing in hour one? They'd be riding their bikes. <laughs> and you know what they'd be doing? Sometimes, like, some people go further ahead, and then after a while, they would, like, kind of fall behind, and other people go further ahead. That's the Tour de France. And it lasts for three weeks, 21 days, 21 stages. Yeah. Yeah, but they're in France, exactly. I'm just there for the beauty, and I'm thinking about Monet and all kinds of other things. No, um, I'm thinking about watts and VO2 max and um, how many calories they need and <laughs> all this other kind of crap. All right. Back to the exercise. Thinking, feeling, sensing, and imagination. Well, what was I feeling? Was I feeling bored? Was I feeling jealous? Was I f feeling regret? That is actually quite difficult for many people to sink into. What was I actually feeling when I was looking at someone else's pictures from their vacation to Mexico? They don't really want to say jealousy, anger, envy, rage, and hatred. It's like, oh, they seem like they're having a good time, okay? That's getting to know yourself in ego consciousness. I'm telling you, there's a lot at stake. If you keep pushing that down, then you remain just the little iceberg. That's it, going around. Not, not that very aware. Okay, um, sensing. Sensing is a little bit harder for people. Like you have to start, like turn the radio dial. What are the, what are, how are my five senses been present this past week? You know, what, what has drawn me, you know, visually? Or what, what about, um, you know, what I, what I heard? Like just now I'm, um, I was on a walk with my wife and I became, we were having a hard time hearing one another because of some noise, like, it happens on a walk. And I realized it was from some crows. I was actually talking louder to get, like, on top of the crows. Like, oh, listen to what I'm saying, you know? But that, yeah, okay, that, that was in my field, but barely in my field of awareness. So yeah, okay. And then it was kind of magnificent. There were so many crows in a single tree that you couldn't even have a conversation. Like, that is awesome, okay? What were they doing? Announcing we're all going to die. That's what they were doing. We're all, you're going to die. Just like that roadkill, you're going to die. And Okay, so thinking, feeling, sensing, and that's imagination right there. That's imagination. Like, what was I imagining? I was imagining that they're sitting in the tree announcing death. That's exactly what I was doing. And, but anyway, bringing conscious attention here to these four windows of knowing. Are you with me so far? I want to apply these, the, the windows of knowing, and this kind of exercise, getting to know yourself and ego consciousness, to three things, and then I'm done. What I don't want to do is go deep down into the unconscious, into shadow material and archetypes and, you know, things that I've um, have, you know, maybe just touched on before. I want to stay more in the realm of persona, ego, and just complexes. And I'm just going to riff on these for a, little, for, for a couple minutes. All right. Your persona is your mask. That's what the word means. How many have heard that before? Okay. Well, now you have, obviously. Have everybody. Persona is your mask. And guess what? You have one. And it's not a problem. It's not wrong. It's part of how you show up in the world. And some of you have more than one mask, <laughs> or it's sophisticated, or you can, you know, it's somewhat malleable. And it's important to have one because how you show up in, up in this room is probably not how you show up at a Thanksgiving gathering or how you show up at work. That's actually part of how we navigate, and we're mostly conscious of it, although it can also, I guess, I shouldn't say mostly. I'm going to make up a number. This is not even true at all. There's no science involved here, but maybe half the time we're aware of it and half the time we're not. 
Half the time we're aware that we're showing up in a certain way, half the time we're not. And so here are my challenge when it comes to getting to know your persona, thinking, by the way, encouraging the exercise, thinking, feeling, sensing, and imagination. So your persona, how would you get to know your persona? Well, it would be in the patterns of how you show up. The patterns of how you show up. Like, here would be something worth paying attention to. When I go to a social gathering, let's say a party, this would be an interesting question. How do I carry my body around? It's not as simple as, I don't know, just walk in, you know? No, I just, I'm encouraging you. Think of, try to feel into how you carry yourself and see if that doesn't feel different than how you walk around your own house or when you talk to your kids or when someone's in the room that you don't like. <laughs> I'm just basic body awareness here. What's the body feel like? This would be part of identifying the kind of persona or mask that we um, might be carrying. Here's another example. Is it possible to become aware of changes in your own voice? Now, I'm, now that I've been you know, into this kind of stuff, I'm sure I do. I'm sure the, the, the actual tone of my voice right now, because I'm standing up here giving a, a talk, is different than if we were just riding in the car together. And we're just like talking about, I don't know, the lions. Or actual lions. That would be more interesting. Okay? And we're just driving along and, you know, okay. But I'm, I'm just saying, I'm encouraging you, get to know yourself in ego consciousness. I have a family member. <laughs> Whenever we're together, they're active when someone else is in the room, a certain person is in the room. I'm hiding the details. When another family member is also in the room, their octave goes up a couple of notches. And I just started noticing that one day. Now, it's easier to pick on other people, you know, like, pff, clearly, persona, all right? No, but it's like, no, every time they're around, it's like, whoop, there goes the, okay? It's a mask. It's a way of, this is how I'm going to show up in this particular setting. Same with, whole, families have whole sophisticated ways of doing this. Like, my brother, and he would readily admit, in any kind of family gathering, everyone expects him to be funny, okay? Whether he's funny or not is irrelevant. All right? Now, that might have something to do with family systems, dynamics, and so forth, and, but it's a persona. And to show up that way, we recognize him. Here comes my brother. He's funny in these kinds of settings. And then he shows up and says, here I am. I'm funny in these kinds of settings. And it's just, that's a persona. All right? Now, if you want, if you're at all interested in what is below the waterline, you have to take some responsibility and say, what are the masks that I'm wearing? Do they fit? And sometimes they don't fit anymore. Sometimes you realize, I am acting this way because I always act this way, and really I'm just trying to protect myself from any kind of vulnerability or honesty or fill in the blank. Have I made sense? Okay, so getting to know a bit of your persona, changes in voice, changes in body, um, what you feel compelled to wear or not wear in certain settings, or the kind of thing you'll display or not display, the kind of hair you have or you want to have, <laughs> um, how others might describe you when you're at work. Oftentimes, that'll reveal quite a bit about your persona. If I would just ask somebody, what are you like at work or what are you like at home? And they would just say, oh, they're like, I'd get little clues. Be like, okay, that's kind of how they show up. That's how they see themselves. That's how they're seen. Could be a related to 
the role you play in your family. I sort of already, already mentioned that. Even things like, some of you might not like this, but I th- in my mind, this is related to persona. Even things like when people say, well, as an introvert, I fill in the blank. Or as an extrovert, I'm like this. First of all, you hear that the I is involved. Or how many of you know what the Enneagram is? Okay, many times people will say, well, as a seven, I do this. Okay? Much of the time, that's much more closely related to how you're showing up in the world as a pattern. Right? And how you want to be seen or perceived. There's like a dynamic. And when people get fixated on that, they're basically saying, don't take my mask off. All right? Well, as an introvert, I can't go to that translation. Don't take my mask off. <laughs> now, nothing wrong with being introvert. That is a real thing. That's a real disposition. Same with being an extrovert. So it's a kind of way of defending our masks. And we need masks to survive, as I kind of said that before. We need it, a certain amount of conformity just to get by. Okay, I'm going to skip to the ego, and I'm going to say something about complexes. All right, so that's just on the level of persona. Let's say something about the ego. So the way I use the word ego, as I've tried to define here before, is uh, what we're conscious of. What, what we're conscious of, what we're aware of. That's the I, that's the ego. Our awareness at any given moment. It's the house that we think we're living in. It's sort of constructed from the available material, you could say. But it's the house that we think we're inhabiting. This is the house of my ego. This is my world that I, um, that I formed or has formed around me. And it organizes our experience. Like people say, um, <clears throat> well, you know, so-and-so is egoless. And I'd be like, no, that's impossible. It, it is actually the organizing. Jung calls it the seat of consciousness. So it's like it brings things down and has it sit somewhere. It organizes experience. Otherwise, life would be so chaotic that we wouldn't know who the hell we were or what was going on. So it it has a kind of organizing force to it. Um, I'm just skipping ahead. Okay, so here's my point in in terms of uh, the ego and the aperture. The ego wants to keep our horizons relatively small, wants to keep the aperture closed because, or small, because if it widens, then it's challenged. Just like learning anything at all. Like if I tell you um, uh, Lake Michigan is salt water, you know, you're like, yeah, Lake Michigan salt water, that's crazy, you know, and then you go out there and you're like, no, it's not, okay? The aperture grows and then you're challenged. You're like, oh, okay, so the ego, it almost has a kind of comp- Impulsive drive to keep the aperture relatively closed. So when confronted with some new idea or feeling or person or experience that challenges what we think we know, it becomes defensive. It repeats the same stories. <laughs> you know, new I- <laughs> new I- you know, somebody brings up something new and oh, I'll just repeat the same story I gave last week, you know, this kind of thing. Or um, it shores up its defenses. So again, come back to the exercise. What am I thinking? What am I feeling? What am I sensing? What am I imagining? I'm challenging you. Get to know yourself in ego consciousness. Just start making a record. What have I been thinking about? What have I been defending? What stories have I been repeating? I'm telling you, if you do what I'm saying for a couple weeks, and you realize, 
oh, um, I've done this nine times. Then you're getting to know yourself and ego consciousness. You're like, there it is. That's the, the tip of my iceberg at work here. Okay, now I want to say something about complexes. So just below the waterline, we've got persona and ego. I'll try to be brief here. We have energies or patterns that take over the ego with which we have very little awareness. That's what a complex is. Complex comes up and takes over the house. It's like we have these complexes that live in the basement, and they're down there, and they have their own individual rooms, and they're eating meals and talking with one another. And Then something happens, and they're like, my turn. They come up from the basement, and they take over the house. All right? And they color everything in there, and they say, this is how we're going to behave in a given situation. So I'm encouraging this exercise. What have I been thinking, feeling, sensing, imagining? We'll give you some clues about the kinds of complexes that come up and take over. Here's a, a, here, like a, a kind of informal way of naming some of them. These I got from Bill Plotkin. These are kind of habitual responses. The loyal soldier, like be a good boy, be a good girl. Like there you are just minding your own business and all of a sudden up from the basement comes the person that says, time to be a good boy and get in line. Or here's another one, the lion tamer. The lion tamer is the voice that says, shut your mouth, stay small. How dare you? You have no right to speak up or be heard. Just keep yourself small and say, that's a lion tamer. Okay, up from the basement they come. And the escapist, I have a massive escapist. Like even right now, I'm thinking, what's the safest way out? Okay, I'm not really thinking that, but if I give attention all of a sudden, if I relax and say, is that in my conscious awareness? It is. And, you know, I'll just look for ways of hitting the eject button on my own life, that kind of thing. Escapist. These are strategies that live in the basement. Um, the addict. The wounded child is down there, you know, trying to get his or her needs met. The codependent caretaker, otherwise known as a caretaker, you know, codependent caretaker. I know I'll be safe. There you are minding your own business, and all of a sudden someone asks, and you're like, I'm the first there. I'll stay till, I'll be the last one to leave. I'll be known by being a caretaker, okay? And they, it takes over our conscious awareness. It comes up from the bottom of the iceberg and lives, lives up there at the tip for a while. That's what a complex does. So I'm saying, if you take my exercise seriously, you might start to notice some of these patterns. The tyrant. Now, that one's kind of easy when you think about other people. Hardly anyone admits, I'm a tyrant, okay? But... You see, all of a sudden, someone's pushed in the corner and they, like, something clicks. And then they want to tyrannically control the entire situation. Where did that come from? Five minutes ago, you were just, whatever, like, looking at Instagram for 30 minutes, okay? And up from the basement comes a tyrant. Maybe I don't want to give you more. The victim, perhaps, the princess or Prince, <laughs> that's one of my favorites. Um, I deserve this. You deserve a break today. What, what, what is that? McDonald's, yeah, you deserve a break today. That's the princess, okay? And that can take over your whole, just your whole awareness for a while. Yeah, I, you're damn right I do. Okay. Okay, I don't want to say much more here. Um, only for the sake of time. Here's my main encouragement. I don't think 
we're going to make much progress as individuals or as a small community or as a larger community if we don't do our own part to make the darkness conscious, to make what is unknown a little more known, to, to allow those the discomfort of being exposed to come into our conscious awareness. What happens is our consciousness expands, our ego expands. We're able to include more. We're able to say, I'm not as righteous as I thought I was. I'm not as holy as I thought I was. Or the opposite, I'm not as bad as I thought I was, as the stories that I keep telling myself. It turns out I'm just a human being. I'm just a mixture of this and that. Nothing is pure anywhere. That's what starts to happen. And I don't think, I mean, when I think about, I'm, I'm almost done here at C3, you know, which is sad. It's sad. Like, I'm, I'm definitely going to miss being here. I'm going to miss, you know, seeing your face. I'm going to miss the conversation. This, more than anything else in my life, this kind of, um, uh, this environment has felt like a living conversation around important things like, spirituality and whatever, the psyche and dreams and values. and Anyway, it's felt like a conversation. It's, it's, you've affected me, as I hope in some way, I've, or you've infected me, as I've hoped uh, in the age of contagion. And I, hopefully something I've said and done has also infected you. There's been a, that's what I mean by a living conversation. I'm, I'm definitely going to miss that. But I would like to say that the entire world is moving toward, in my view, mainstream world, is moving toward less consciousness about everything. Let's just stay in our little camps, stay in our little myopic vision, close the aperture, convince everybody that we're right and everybody else is wrong, and everybody is prone to move in that direction. It actually feels good. Do you know how good it feels to say, those bastards are wrong? And I'm right? I mean, like, every, it's like, yeah. It's like if the Lions were to actually win the Super Bowl or whatever, you know? It feels good to win. But I'm saying we don't make any progress, not, not in any deep sense. And what the world needs are people like you and I that are in our own small ways are trying to make the darkness of our own ordinary lives a little more conscious. And then you can see clearly to help, um, what's the right way? to help some of the biggest problems we face as, a human, as, as human beings. You can't do it and remain with a tiny aperture. That's what I got.